Welcome to 721 Live, the video arm of 721 Ministries. I'm Sam Hunter. I'm glad that you're with us. Thank you for joining us. Jesus tells us not to worry. Jesus says there's no reason to worry. As a matter of fact, Jesus at times looked at his disciples with a, an incredulous look and said, you still have no faith? You're still worrying? You're still afraid? And we want to say to Jesus, you're not being realistic. We're humans. Some people think we're not even responsible if we don't worry. But Jesus tells us not to worry, and he gives us the reasons why. And so today, for the second time in a row, last week we started this. I think it deserves at least two looks, maybe more, to get us to actually believe what Jesus believed, because Jesus believed there was no reason to worry. Now, before we start, so that you can pick up last week's or the previous videos, Tap that little subscription so that these come out to you immediately upon our release. Tap that now, and you'll be subscribed to these. And I thank you for doing that. So we're, in, we're going back through the Sermon on the Mount. We had finished chapter 5. We spent a, an entire semester on the Lord's Prayer, the Disciples' Prayer, we call it. And now we're back into chapter 6. Jesus talks about where your treasures are. He talks about how, where your eyes are focused. He talks about how many, you know, you can only have a master either it's either going to be Jesus or it's going to be you or the world. I mean, you only have that binary choice. And after he explains all this, then he goes into this discussion about, so based on this, I'm just telling you, you don't need to worry. And we just do not believe Jesus. As John Ortberg said so famously, you may believe in Jesus, you just probably don't believe what Jesus believed. So my goal today and yesterday, last weekend today is, is that we actually, myself included, we get to the point where we really believe what Jesus said and that he meant it and that it is factual, that we really do not have to worry. There's no need to worry. And let me say this. We're human. When something turns upside down, when things are not going well, we are going to worry. So the real goal is how quickly can we bounce back? How quickly can we gather ourselves and realize no, I'm not alone in this. I do not have to worry. That is really what I want to drill into both you and to me. How quickly can we come to our senses and say, no, I'm not going to do this. One of my favorite quotations, speaking about worry, worry is the interest you pay on a debt you may not owe. How many times have I worried about something? How many times have you worried about something that never actually happened? Or if it did happen, it really wasn't that bad. Let's not be borrowing trouble. Let's not pay interest on, tr on something we, that may never even happen. Now, last week we asked three, these three questions, and I want to just start back with these three because it's important for us to get grounded in this. Number one is worry a sin. Now, to answer that question, I've given you a passage from Romans 14.23. In Romans 14.23, Paul writes, the Holy Spirit through Paul, talks about what is sin, what isn't sin, and he concludes with this, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. Everything that does not come from faith. And remember, let's always substitute trust for faith. Everything that does not come from trust is sin. So worry is a sin, because worry means you're not trusting him. Now, why is it actually a sin? And it is because when you, act, when you do not trust Jesus, you're going to act on your own. 
you're going to revert to trusting yourself with a big capital S, self. And whenever you go it alone, whenever you go your way, whenever it's your will, not his, you're venturing into sin. It may not be evil sin. It may not be a neon light sin, but you've separated yourself from Jesus, from your heavenly father, because you do not trust them. So number one is worry of sin. Yes, it is a sin. It's not just a human thing that we, emotion that we deal with. It's actually a sin. Number two, worry versus responsible. Some men have said to me, it's not, if you're a grown man, you're not being responsible if you don't, if you don't worry, that you have to worry to be responsible. And, and they're envisioning someone who's just la-de-da, walking through the roses, you know, the tulips and all, and not paying attention to the things that we have to pay attention to in life. That's not the issue here. The issue is worrying about these things, being prudent, being responsible, being concerned and aware and doing our part, which we'll see in just a few minutes how Paul talks about doing his part. That's the, there's a big difference between that and worrying and stewing over something. All right. Number three, is worry a choice? And the simple fact is, yes, it is. Worry is a choice. There are things I could be worried about right now. If I wanted to worry about something, I could, I could sit down and figure out something to worry about. But I choose not to worry about these things. Now, I, I mentioned this last week. I have found myself walking through my kitchen, walking through my office, thinking, now, wait a minute, there's something I, I was worried about a minute ago, and now I've forgotten. What was it? I need to remember it so I can worry about it. I'm no different than you. But I really am trying to move along to get to the point where I say, no, I, I believe you, Jesus. I believe you when you say that worry, there's no need to. Worry is a choice. Let's learn to refuse to choose to worry. So Jesus in Matthew 6, he starts back in on worry. And he says, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. Can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? Can you control the outcome? I'm adding control the outcome. By worrying, do you control the outcome? No, you do not. And Jesus says, and why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the fields grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not? much more clothe you, you of little faith. And I added, you who choose to refuse to believe what I say. There's so many times where Jesus uses that phrase, how much more? He contrasts our Heavenly Father with normal human qualities, and he says, how much more? Here he says, how much more will your Heavenly Father take care of you if you will just Place your trust in him. And then he goes on to say this, and this really is the one passage that we dethrone Jesus more than any other passage, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things that you're worrying about will be given to you as well. And then he says this in verse 34, refuse to worry. I'm using uh, the Passion Translation because I think the wording is so, it's just so right on. Refuse to worry. Choose to refuse to worry about tomorrow. But deal with each challenge that comes your way one day at a time. Tomorrow will take care of itself. You see, we have the choice. 
And Jesus is not being Pollyannish, and he's not wearing rose-colored glasses. He says, yeah, there are troubles. There are troubles in this world. Deal with them. One at a time, deal with them. But don't worry about them. And don't worry about tomorrow. There'll be things that happen tomorrow. Tomorrow will come, and it'll go, and don't worry. And one of the things I always tell people when they're, when they're really upside down, one of the things I advise them when they're upside down, is do not project that into the future. Do not think to yourself, how will I live with this? How, what if this happens? How will I ever? Because we, know, we have no idea what the future holds. And so often, it never turns out the way the, thing, the things that we're so worried about, they don't even happen. And if they do happen, they're not that bad. So do not project that in the future. That's what, that's what Jesus is saying. And the bottom line is, if we seek first self's treasures, we will have many worries. If we seek first Jesus, there'll be a whole lot less worrying. Now, today I want to I I use the example of Saul, King Saul, in two different stories. And then I'll, in the second story, I'll contrast him with David. But I want, to, I want us to look at what someone who doesn't know their Heavenly Father, they, they know God, but they don't know Him as their Heavenly Father. They don't know Him as that loving, compassionate, all-powerful, always involved in the details, always looking after us, hemming us in, before and behind. They don't know Him that way. And this is what people who don't know Him that way, pagans, Jesus would say, this is what they look like. Let's look at this passage in 1 Samuel chapter 13. It's just... It's just perfect for giving us this example. Saul has his army, and they're facing the Philistines, and they're getting ready to go to war, and we pick it up at verse 5 in 1 Samuel 13. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots. Imagine that, 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. That would be scary. No doubt that would be scary. They went up and they camped at Michmash, east of Beth Elbin. When the Israelites saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. They were scared to death. They saw this vast army. And they didn't know. They were freaking out. And I think I probably would too. But Saul is the leader. He's called by God. Saul, apparently, Samuel told Saul, I'll be there in seven days. I will offer sacrifices. I will set up the offerings so that when you go to war, you'll have God with you. Now we pick up the story because Saul cannot wait. Saul gives us the quintessential reaction of someone who says, if I don't, it won't. If it's to be, it's up to me. This is what people look like who do not trust Jesus, who do not take him at his word, who do not trust their heavenly father when he says, I'm going to take care of you. We take things in our own hands. We control it. We try to fix it. And in all likelihood, we make everybody around us miserable. Here's what Saul does when faced with this very scary enemy. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So things are looking really bad for Saul. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. 
And Saul offered up the burnt offerings. Not supposed to do that. Only Samuel's supposed to do that. But Saul said, I've got to do something. Things are falling apart. I have to do something. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. Saul just took things into his own hands. And we're human. I hardly blame him, but I don't want to be Saul. Saul saw the situation crumbling. Things were upside down. They were not going well. And he had, if I don't, it won't. If this to be, it's up to me. Samuel arrives and says, what in the world is going on? What have you done, asked Samuel. And Saul replied, well, when, well, you know, come on, Samuel. When I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do? That's, I'm adding that in. I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor, so I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. And here's Samuel's response. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time, but now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. So, what do pagans look like? They look like people who say, if I don't, it won't. If this to be, it's up to me. Now, I'm sure you have been in that situation. I've been in that situation in the past, and I have taken things into my own hands. And remember, in Romans 14, and anything that does not come from trust is sin. I've taken things into my own hands because I didn't think that God was moving quickly enough. I didn't think he was going to move. Perhaps you don't think he's even paying attention to your situation. Or he, he's just too big a God to deal with your little tiny situation. Or maybe he's helped you in the past. He's, he's shown up. You've realized it. You've thanked him for it. But in this situation, it doesn't appear he's going to show up. This time he's going to let you down. And Satan is going to jump into your mind and say, you, you just cannot trust him. He's doing something else. He's not paying attention. You're on your own. You're going to have to take control of this. You're going to have to fix this no matter what. This is Saul, and this is us. Saul was worried, and he let the, his worrying get the best of him, and he acted on his worry instead of acting. He reacted to his worry. He did not respond to his faith. Do you react in fear or do you respond in faith? Jesus is going to tell you over and over, there's no need to act out. There's no need to worry. I've got you. I'm going to take care of this. And we'll talk a little bit more about what is our role and what is his role. Are we just supposed to sit in a closet and do nothing? The answer is no. But let's keep going with this because what do pagans look like? If I don't, it won't. If this to be, it's up to me. Now, what about people who do know God, who know God as their loving Heavenly Father, who know Jesus as their best friend? What do they look like? In contrast to Saul, what do people who really do know him look like? And there's a great example of this in Acts, in chapter 4. John and Peter have been pulled before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the governing body of the, of the Jews, and they're the ones who got Jesus arrested and crucified. Now, we're shortly after that. 
And John and Peter are out along with the other disciples. They're preaching Jesus, his resurrection, and they're hanging it on the Sanhedrin. It's their fault. And so they, they pull them in and they say, stop doing that. Stop doing it. Quit talking about Jesus. Quit talking about him being resurrected and quit blaming us. And Peter and John stand there resolute. And it just seems matter of factly, they say, look, you'll have to do what you'll have to do. We're not going to stop talking about what we saw. Remember, the disciples were not willing to die for the rest of their lives for what they believed. They were willing to die for what they saw. And that's what they say. We saw him dead. We saw him alive. We're not going to stop talking about it. And look at this little note that we get in Acts chapter 4, verse 13. When they, that would be the Sanhedrin, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. They saw how they responded, and they couldn't believe it. And they couldn't help but say, well, you know, this Jesus guy has changed these men. Do we look any different than those around us when everything turns upside down? Would anyone look at us in the midst of a crisis and say, wow, he, she, always talks about their relationship with Jesus, and they look different. They're not freaking out. They're standing steady. Would we look like that? I hope so. That's, what, that's the aim. That's what we want to live for. Now, as I mentioned earlier, we're not talking about sitting in a closet and praying and expecting God to take care of your life, your business, your family. No, we have a part to play in this. We have a role to play in this. We do what is the responsible thing to do? We do the next right thing in front of us, but we don't worry about it. And when we do it, we do it in partnership with Jesus. We do it in partnership with the Holy Spirit. We do our part, but it is in a relationship where Jesus and the Holy Spirit, we know that they've got to help us do what we do. And Paul captures this perfectly in two letters, one to the Colossians and one to the Corinthians. I've got them both here. Colossians 1.29. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy. Now, I strenuously contend. I'm not phoning it in. I'm not giving it just a little bit of an effort. I'm doing my part. I'm strenuously contending with all the energy. Christ so powerfully works in me. I'm doing my part, but I'm, I'm getting my energy, my Holy Spirit power through Jesus, who's powerfully working in me. And then to the Corinthians. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. I worked harder than all of them. I didn't sit in a closet. I didn't pray and expect God to take care of all my issues. I worked as hard as anybody harder. And yet, 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 not I, but the grace of God that was with me. What those who live with Holy Spirit power look like, as Dallas Willard captured it, within our actions, beyond our powers, within our actions, beyond our powers. We do our part. We act. We don't stand around. We don't worry, but we also don't expect God to take care of every detail. We act within our actions, but with the Holy Spirit working, as we learn to live and walk and work in unison with him, we know that he's going to help us with it, and we're going to be able to live that way. So, let me just talk for just a moment about 
what to do instead of worrying. And one of my one of my favorite suggestions, counseling to people who are really upside down and just just having such a hard time with it, I'll say, pull up a chair. And sit down in a chair and pull up an empty chair in front of you. And I call this the Jesus chair. We're fixing our eyes on Jesus. You pull that chair up. And I'm serious about this. You pull that chair up and you look at Jesus in that chair and you talk to him. Just as if he's in the chair. I've done this. I've had other people do it. And imagine him listening to you. And, and tell him everything. Tell him everything on your heart. Cast all your anxieties on him. On him. And just picture him watching you, responding with that loving smile, that compassion, that empathy. Try that. Put your eyes on Jesus. Not on what's going on around you. Put your eyes on Jesus. Because Satan, his three Ds, destroy, distract, discourage. Destroy, distract. He'll say, look at the lack. Don't look at the lavish. Look at the lack. Look over here. Don't watch Jesus. Look at all your problems. And then we are, obviously, we end up being discouraged. I, I get this from search ministries. So Isaiah 26, 3, you will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are stayed on you because they trust in you. You will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are stayed on you. My eyes are fixed on Jesus. I'm seeing Jesus. I'm seeing my Heavenly Father because I live in a God-saturated world. I don't see the problems in front of me, not first. I see them through a prism of my Heavenly Father, of His presence, of His promises, of His perfect love, of His perfect power. Here's the second story about Saul, but now we have David as a contrast. You know the story, David and Goliath. You've got the Philistine army on one ridge. You've got the Israeli army on the other ridge with Saul. I've been there. And it's, there, are, there are two ridges, and there's a stream in between. And Goliath comes out each day and challenges Saul and challenges his army. And they are scared to death of him. He's huge. He's a giant. He's a monster. And he, they're scared to death because what they see is this giant. That's all they can see. God's nowhere in the picture. David comes along and views it a different way. Now, we have a little slide here that, that gives us a visual of this. We're doing our best. We're just a two-man operation. So just go with it because it will tell us. We'll show it, I'll show it to you in a minute. It will give you the visual. Here's a quotation. I do not know who said this, but we don't see things as they are. We see things as we are. That's worth repeating. We don't see things as they are. We see things as we are. So here we are. Here's the story. 1 Samuel 17, 25. Now the Israelites, and that'd be Saul and his army, had been saying, do you see how this giant, I added, giant man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. That's how they see it. He's defying Israel. He's defying Saul. David comes out and says, who is this and I added puny. Who is this puny, uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of, not Israel, not Saul, of the living God? That's what David sees. He sees this, is, this, this Goliath is coming out, and he's trash-talking my heavenly Father. I'm not going to put up with this. He doesn't see 
this monster, his prism is through his heavenly father. So he steps out there and challenges him, young David. And his, this is Goliath's response. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. I got to tell you, that would freak me out. David talked right back to him. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. I love it. David's trash talking right back to Goliath. He's not afraid of it. He sees this whole thing as Goliath, he's slamming my heavenly father. He's denigrating my heavenly father. I'm not going to have it. I don't see this giant. All Saul and his army can see is this giant. All David can see is his heavenly father. And here's our little sketch. And I, I think this is actually pretty good. I think I ought to get some type of an award for this, by the way. I say that facetiously. Here's Saul and his armies. All they can see is Goliath. They can't even see God on the other side. And God has shrunk down to this little God because all they can see are their problems. David, on the other hand, he is viewing everything through a prism of God and Goliath has shrunk down to a little man. As basic as this is, this captures what happens to us. We're over here. Our problems become Goliath because we cannot even see God. We're not factoring in that he's always around us. We forget his promises. We forget his presence. We forget his perfect love. And all we see are the problems. And they're Goliath in, in size. David sees everything through a prism of his heavenly father's presence and his perfect love and his power. And Goliath, his problems are shrunk down to really normal size or even diminished down to almost nothing. And that is what David does versus Saul. Now, I want you to listen to me for a minute. This is going to hit us every day of our lives. Something is going to happen that we, if we're not, if we let our emotions run. Remember, feelings are okay as servants, but they're disastrous masters. Feelings are okay as servants, but they're disastrous masters. If we let our feelings and therefore our fear master us, then our problems are going to be Goliath. But if we remember Jesus' promises, our Heavenly Father's promises, that we're hemmed in, that He's always around us, that He's always present. Remember Jesus said in Matthew 10, 29, two sparrows, are they worth a penny, a nickel? Not one of those sparrows falls from the sky apart from your Father's will. And by the way, I, He even knows the number of hairs on your head. That's how detailed He is. When we have that perspective, when we have that prism through which we view life, our Goliath problems shrink down to practically nothing. And this is the choice that we make, to see this through a prism of our Heavenly Father's presence. I, I remember my father, was a, my father was a bomber pilot in World War II, and, and some of his friends in Sumter actually, they were infantry. And one of his friends, Flop Shaw, had his head about half blown off while charging the beaches in Italy, and his family was told that he was dead. He survived, lived a full life. I asked Dad, how, how could y'all do that? 
when, when bombs are flying around you and bullets are whizzing by and planes are being shot down, people are dying next to you. How do you continue to move forward? He said, son, it was the training. It was the training where you just followed your training. And that's what the armed, armed services do. They train you so that when you get in those really turbulent situations, crisis situations, you just stick to your training. And I wish that we could get together for, let's say, six months, and we could just run through drill after drill. We could throw out a situation that would be nerve-wracking, that would be scary, that would induce all kind of fear and paranoia, and let's practice sticking to our training, fixing our eyes on Jesus, seeing everything through a prism of his promises and his perfect love and his perfect power. But we have to do this ourselves. We can only talk about it here. We have to appropriate it and bring it into our lives. This is what it looks like to follow, to trust and follow Jesus in his promises. When he says, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, and I'll take care of these other things, this is what it looks like. Let's you and I purpose to actually believe what Jesus believed. Okay, because we live in a God-saturated world. I'm going to show you two passages. The first one I'm... I'm using the Passion Translation because I just love the way it, he words it. Uh, Psalm 119, you're, you're my place of quiet retreat, and your wraparound presence becomes my shield as I wrap myself in your word. Isn't that beautiful? You're my wraparound, your, your wraparound presence becomes my shield as I wrap myself in your word. Psalm 139. And as we read this, I want to challenge you. Do you really believe this? Do you really believe this? You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Do you believe that? Because if you do, it's going to change the way you live. Verse 4, before a word is on my tongue, Lord, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me and too lofty for me to attain. You hem me in. I'm protected by you. You're all around me. Last week, we looked at two Isaiah passages where he says, "You're you're out before me and you're my rear guard. Do you believe that? Because if you do, then you'll be able to live more like David where you view things through a prism of his presence. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. It's just unbelievable that we could actually live this way. Isaiah gives us a passage about God's mighty hand, and then Peter follows up. This is one of my favorite passages from Isaiah 41.10. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And then Jesus says, humble yourself, excuse me, Peter says, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast, abandon all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. God's mighty hand, when we humble ourselves, we're putting ourselves in his protection. And we're really calling on him to, to deliver to deliver on his promises. And Peter uses this word cast, cast all your anxieties. 
It's a fisherman's term for throwing the net away from the boat. Cast, abandon, throw it away. But now, notice, don't just throw it away. Don't just try to ignore it. Throw it onto Jesus. Put him in that chair and say, you take this. You've got to handle this. I cannot handle this. Please, you shoulder it. That's what we do. Now, Peter goes on to remind us that Satan is out there trying to trip us up. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Yes, he's real. But then Peter says, just resist him. Just resist him. Choose to not trust him. Choose to trust your heavenly father. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering, and the God of all grace, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Let's place our faith in him. Let's Watch out for Satan. He's real. He's trying to trip you up. But all he can do is bluff. All he can do is try to get us to look away from Jesus. Look from the lavish to the lack. Look at the one thing we don't have. Look at, look at the problems we have, not the presence we have of our Heavenly Father, of, of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Now, I want to conclude with this question. Do you worry about your salvation? Do you worry about eternity? Do you worry about your salvation? Do you worry about eternity? And I have two answers to that, two responses, I should say. The first response is, you better. You better worry about eternity. It better be something that's on your mind. And, and let me just say this bluntly, but with love. If you are worried about it, perhaps you're not saved. Because this is a, following Jesus, we know when we're saved. And if you don't know, you probably are not. John, in his first letter, he gives us six, seven, maybe depending on how you count them, seven to eight examples of what it looks like to be saved in any given situation. And then he says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. You may know that you have eternal life. And I saw this quotation in varying forms. I adjusted it to put it this way. Jesus is not a hope-so religion. His is a no-so relationship. This is not a hope-so religion. It's a no-so relationship. You can. You can live without worry. We can. Choose. Refuse to worry. This is what I want for you. It's what I want for me. That when worry hits us, we, we just make the choice. I am not going to let this. I'm not going to let it. I'm not going to absorb it. I'm going to deflect it. I'm going to throw it over on Jesus' shoulders. That's what he tells us to do. So I want to finish with this favorite passage of mine from Matthew 11. And I've got the NIV and I've got Eugene Peterson's The Message Translation because I think his translation of this is one of the most beautiful things I've, I've ever read. And when I met him, I told him, there are a lot of things that are nice in the way you translated the message. This one is the best. Jesus says, come to me. When you're worried, when you're freaked out, when you're weary and burdened, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke, take my teaching upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That's what we're all looking for. We're looking for rest for our souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And Eugene Peterson translates it this way. Come to me, get away with me, and you will recover your life. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Keep company with me, and you will learn to live freely and lightly. That is the promise. Keep company with me. Know that I'm with you. Be in a conversational relationship with me throughout the day. And instead of freaking out, instead of controlling things, instead of saying, if I don't, it won't. If it's to be, it's up to me. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Learn, learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Because there's more. There's so much more. And you know it. Come, follow Jesus, and find Him.